Hello and welcome to Not Compliant Enough. I'm your podcast host, Carista, and today we have a guest, Ryan Butter, who is a author. Uh, he's recently authored the book, The Ballad of Abdul Wade. He grew up in regional New South Wales. Before starting writing, he worked in international trade and has lived and worked extensively overseas. He also authors Out of Office, which is a newsletter that charts his course of quitting office life to pursue a writing career. And that is what we are here to talk about today. As much as his recent book is amazing, um, we're going to delve into his experience with leaving the office and hopefully to never return. Welcome, Ryan. Hi, how are you going? Nice to be here. <laughs> Thanks for coming along. Um, so... I must say that in starting this podcast called Not Compliant Enough, which is sort of about not being compliant in the office life, um, I must say that your out-of-office Substack newsletter really inspired me to come out and talk about these things. Um, and I just would like to know, like, what really inspired you to start out of office and, and what's your journey been with that? Yeah, it's a good question to think back on that. It's been almost a year now since I started out of office. And I think when I when I left the office, uh, I probably had probably didn't have a great experience the few years previous going to the office. Had a lot of questions, had a lot of thoughts about office life, sort of questioning myself, I suppose, thinking like, why hasn't it gone well for me or why haven't I enjoyed it? And, you know, all these other people are in their office and going to work and work off their mortgages. So I suppose that the newsletter was a way for me to work through some of these questions in my head. Uh, and, you know, I've always liked writing and I write. So then it's also given me that excuse to write and post. I post twice, uh, twice a month or every two weeks. But it was really, really a way to work through those thoughts about office life that I've had and, and try to work out, come to terms with things and, and, and think about it. And, and one of the interesting things has been, as you've said, that actually the things I've been asking myself for the last four years, a lot of people are asking themselves. And maybe not a lot of them actually taken that action to get out and, and, and get out of the office like I did. So that's been really interesting to hear those. Well, I think I've lost you. Dropped out. Hi, I don't know what happened. Yeah, no, just dropped out. That's okay. I'm so sorry. Um, no, no. So, yeah, you were saying that you um, had noticed that people, like, were still kind of staying in these jobs and you were kind of questioning a lot of that. So... Yeah, um, so the, the useful thing for me was, like, to step out of the office and get out of that physical environment. And to really think about you know things that come up that you probably don't have time to think about when you're in the office like you know is this worth it what am i putting myself through worth it and so it's been good to share that experience and the writing's been about sharing that but it's also about working through those questions for myself um over the course of you know, almost 12 months now yeah it's incredible and i must say that i really love the way that you weave in historical antidotes and like your own personal experiences and how that kind of correlates as well like I'm fascinated by obviously your reading pile it must be huge because <laughs> there are so many different little tidbits that you include in there that are just so fascinating that um yeah like how do you come across these 
these little insightful things or you're just a curious person by nature and and that's kind of how it it weaves its way in yeah it's interesting I, a lot of the things are historical now there might be things i might have read 20 years ago or I'm a bit of a bow bird, so I'll, I'll collect things. And then when I'm thinking about things, I'll, oh, that actually reminds me of that. Well, that's a good analogy for that. So maybe that's one of the um, telltale signs of a writer. We're always collecting like interesting sentences and interesting thoughts and analogies that we can maybe use. So maybe that's been the best thing this year to use up some of those analogies and, and, and stories that I've collected over the years. But they just seem to come up. And I mean, I, I do work quite a lot on each post and you know they come out every two weeks but I'm sort of continually writing them and sometimes I'll sort of get ahead and I'll have five that are in some sort of form and then I sort of just polish them polish them polish them then release them as I go sometimes something just comes to me uh, like the last one I, I posted the other week about bad bosses that came about because I read that that quote from the Nikki Sava book about um, the governor general and it just got me thinking about awful bosses and, and then I remember that I'd read some research a couple of years ago now about how uh, power uh, affects people in the same way like kind of calls it a kind of brain damage and I remember reading that um, when I was working uh, in state government and I just thought yeah these people at the top are suffering from some kind of brain damage and so when you read that that sticks with you that type of research. Yeah, absolutely. And it was such an incredible post. I got fired up about it and got on LinkedIn and went a bit ragey on there too, because like after working for so many CEOs and to a minister and things like you see these experiences firsthand and how people placate to so much of that behavior. It's, it's actually kind of insane. And you articulated that so well in, in your most recent article there. Absolutely. What has been your um, most interesting feedback that you've received in this like year of writing your uh, your Substack newsletter? It's it's what's been interesting for me is that people it's resonated with people, which tells me that there's a lot of people thinking and feeling what I, I've gone through. I was kind of lucky that I could do it. I don't have children, don't have a mortgage, and I realise that a lot of people can't do it. Um, but I also argue that. When you're in those environments, you feel like you can't do it and you feel like there's no answer. And even though I had kind of zero obligations, I felt like I couldn't do it for a long time. And after about a year in government, I wanted to quit and I didn't. The whole world, how am I going to do this and pay for that? You know? And you tell yourself, but then after a while, you start to wear yourself down or you start to value yourself as the organisation values you and you think, oh, I'm never going to get another job. I'm useless because that's the sort of indirect messages coming to you. Or maybe I am. Um, so what's been really interesting is people share their stories and say, yeah, I've gone through exactly that and, you know, I wish I could, or I'd love to do that. But then also people have written to me who have actually quit their jobs <laughs> and, and that's been quite a, uh, scary. I'm definitely not there to give uh, career advice, but it's also nice that, you know, people start to, to question and, and you might question things and just make a change, not necessarily quit your job, you might say, actually, you know what, I need to. What, what I've been thinking about lately is the analogy of the boiling frog in that, you know, we, we look at that experiment and we're like, well, why doesn't the frog know it's boiling and why doesn't it jump out? But then when you look at us as humans, we know when things are going wrong. We know when we're not happy at work and yet we still stay in the boiling water. And to me, that's quite interesting. So to help people reflect, 
uh, on their situation and ask some questions and maybe they don't quit their job. Maybe they just make a little change in how they approach their work or, or what they expect or how they interact with their boss. Maybe they start, you know, pushing back and saying, hey, that's absolutely bonkers. What are you doing? Because a lot of that, and that was one of the things that got me, is that no one ever did that. I could see it was everyone just, yep, yep, yep. Especially when you're dealing with ministers and, you know, a lot of those government jobs of contracts and so people don't want to, you know, push the push the envelope too far because they, you know, they don't want to challenge people who are then, you know, reviewing their contract, which a lot of big money contracts are. So I'm not too critical of people, I understand, but hopefully the, the newsletter and what's been most gratifying to me is to see that people are having thoughts about their work and relating and telling their stories. And some people tell me stories there. I did that 20 years ago. Yeah. So it's not a it's not a new thing. You know, this this happened to me and it's happened now, but you know, might be mindful of a midlife crisis. It's, it's not a new thing. There's nothing new under the sun. So I'm just trying to share my journey. I don't have any answers for anybody. Uh, but hopefully the questions I ask myself and the questions I look at in, in out of office can help other people think about those questions and come up with their own answers. Absolutely. And I think that that ties in so nicely with your first article about like the boats and, you know, kind of burning the boats, but also it's like rocking the boat. And interestingly, when you're in these environments for such a long period of time, um, you witness people become very voiceless because they are trying to keep the peace and not rock the boat and appease, you know, to fit in. And it's so interesting that like so many of these organisations almost become homogenous in that they only accept certain people um, and anyone that speaks up to try and change things for the better sometimes are kind of ostracised or they become, as you say, like your confidence is so diminished that, you know, um, you kind of lose your sense of self and, and you just kind of go along with it because it just seems easier. Um, but at what cost? Like it's, it's yeah. I think that that's that's the that's the point is that it's it's easy for a time, but there's always a cost to those things. And I wrote a post not long ago just about the ease of different things in life, but there's always a cost. You know, there's a like at the point the example I gave in that post was that you go to the supermarket now, you don't even know, need to know what you're buying. There's a little camera that detects the color of it, and it just pops up whatever you want it to be, and you can just hit a hit the picture of what you're going to buy. So you don't even know that. So you start to not even think about having to, you know, is that a carrot or is that a rock melon? Whatever's orange, it will come up with a present. So I think in life, in general, we're going down that way of things that are easier. And we have these you know, engineers in Silicon Valley telling us what's easier. And, you know, it's easy now to, to order in food. But what do you lose when you're not going outside, you're interacting with someone being on the counter, you're not physically taking money out of your wallet and paying? There's a cost to all that. Yeah, uh, and then and in the workplace, it's that yeah, it's it's a lot easier just to shut off and go, yep, who cares? And, but I think there's a cost eventually to that kind of behavior. At least there was for me, and I was and I would never someone <laughs> as people who will work with me will say I was always the person in the room putting my hand up. Going, this is ridiculous. Like, but even there's a cost to that as well because you can't keep doing that. At the end of the day, you start thinking, well, am I the mad one? Because yeah, no one like, else is like, hang on, no one else this is, is really, up. yeah, yeah, this is, me, this, yeah. So it becomes quite insidious in that as this this culture of silence, and everyone I think is just trying to get ahead and trying to do their best. But I think at the end of the day, you've got to speak the truth and and, and call things out when you see it. And there's a there's a way to do it, and it doesn't have to be conflictive. But there's definitely 
I suppose that was one of the things in government. I always understood that government was there, or the bureaucracy was there to provide advice to mm. ministers, like best advice. Um, and I'd gone into the role with like a, a huge amount of experience in international trade, and you just see some of the things being done yeah. in support, supposedly in support of companies, and they're not. They're, they're there to support the ministers who say, I need to have a photo op here, and you just got to go and do it. And so that makes no sense. You know, One of the things we'd always get is, hey, the minister's going to get a photo with this particular company. You'd say, well, I know the CEO of that company and he hates the minister and he voted for the opposition, so he does not want you on the property. But that's, you know, we need to go and do it because yeah. they, got a, they got a grant and whatever, so it's good politics. So there was always that um, that tension between good politics and good policy and it always, it's amazing that you know, the politics would win out and people would just go along with that. Whereas I always thought the role of bureaucracy would be to, to push back and provide the best advice. And when they don't do that, I think you get things happening like what we've seen with Scott Morrison, the multiple ministry, and, and just the whole you know, Australian politics is pretty demoralising to look at it. Well, it absolutely is. When you've looked at, like when you've worked at it from the inside as well, it's like you see it from both sides. And Laura Tingle has actually written uh, an amazing piece. It was quite a few years ago, and it was called In Search of Good Government. And um, and in that, she actually articulates how, you know, successive governments over the years have eroded the frank and fearless advice of public service. And so, therefore, we do have quite a, you know, for want of better words, a bow and bend kind of culture in, in that sort of sense that people, um, you know, will, yeah, get the photo ops and about the PR opportunities as opposed to what's necessarily the best for po- policy um in a lot of senses too which yeah it becomes a very interesting interesting area to to look into and I think that we're seeing obviously a lot of that being uncovered right like a lot of the recent things with the ministries and everything like that is is being exposed and people aren't yeah. getting away with that sort of behavior as much anymore yeah. um well or the other example of that was what happened in in New South Wales in the trade area um with the with the appointment of the New York Commission. Yeah. <laughs> That's just public servants just going along with whatever the ministers tell them. And, and it, t- it ties into that thing that we think we're anti-authoritarian as Australians, but we're not. We're just yeah, complete nanny state. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and particularly in those uh, jobs where you're dealing with ministers or higher-ups, we completely counter, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and... I guess that leads to my next kind of question to you is like, you know, being inside these organisations and also like reflecting on your last year of kind of being out of those environments, do you feel like these workplaces, like, because obviously not everyone can leave and if we had everyone leave, leaving the office, we probably wouldn't have a lot of functioning things that we do in this day and age, like, do you feel like there's a way that we can have a future of work where workplaces are changed from the inside effectively so that people don't feel like they're demoralised every day to go into an office situation? Yeah, it's a good question. It's probably a good point to say. I've worked with some like, really amazing people. I'm sure yeah. you did. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know how... They're the ones that usually have the hardest time because they are the hardest workers. They've got a work ethic. Um, they're talented, and it's you know, how do you empower those people? Yeah, because eventually they they leave, um, or they become so demoralised that they 
become bad workers other than they're, rather than they're actually the best workers. But what I what I saw was the good workers, everything just landed on their desk because the bad workers knew that they could throw up that way and it, it didn't get done. And yet at the same time, they became so valuable in their positions that they never had the chance to be promoted. Yeah, absolutely. Which was like a really bizarre thing you see. So you see all these you know, social climbers, not social climbers, but corporate climbers getting promoted off the back of zero work, off the back of other people. And then the really good people continually looked over. Or the people who refused to play the office politics. Yeah. Um, and you're right. And I and one of the things I always thought when I was there that every good person I knew was looking for other work. And I, and I always thought if one day they all got the jobs they had their CVs in for, there'd be nobody left at the office. Um, and then you've got a breakdown in, in critical services. So, you know, the, the trade function is super important to Australia. We're a trading nation. So you need those good people there. But it just seems to me, I, I mean, I'm just thinking this now, I should ask the question, but you've got to be promoting good people, but it's such a nepotistic environment. And, and I, still, I don't know how people got promoted because you'd see people who everybody knew were people that didn't work, wouldn't work, got, got forward on other people's work, and they were the ones that were getting promoted. So there's a lot of self-promotion, which seems to work. A lot of people aren't like that. You know, there's introverts out there who just get on do the work and don't, don't feel comfortable with self-promoting. So how internally do you change your, your dynamic? And I'm not going to say that HR is the answer because they're, again, a group that seem to side with the, the top end. And I don't know anyone who feels that HR is on their side in any organisation I've worked with. Um, so I don't know. I think it's about empowering those really good people, making sure they've got a pathway to get into positions where they can actually be valued. But I think that's one of the big things of these organisations, that people don't feel valued. You see, so you come across people with these amazing qualifications and they're doing something completely unrelated to them. And they're sat in a corner somewhere doing something completely because they've got a boss who feels jealous of their talent. Probably. So I know it's probably not much of an answer, but you need to find those really good people and empower them. But the problem is the people who are charged with finding them and empowering are the ones that have the most to lose. Yeah. So maybe it takes a CEO to come in and actually look what's going on. But having been through God, probably five or six CEOs in the three or four years I was in government, <laughs> you know, they come in with their own agendas and a lot of times they don't they don't want to see as well because it probably takes too much effort to, to realign. And again, that's another challenge of government. You're on these election cycles. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the CEOs come in, the CEOs come in and they've got to deliver something within this year or they might not even be there if it's coming up to an election. It's pretty difficult, yeah. I've always wondered what it's actually like in the corporate sector. I haven't had that much experience in corporates, not internally. So I don't know if it's the same or not, but government was a really, really strange one. You had these people who were permanent who could never be fired. And then the other had people who were contracts and always sort of trying to not rock the boat to keep their contracts. It was a really interesting dynamic. But what I did find was that the good people were never in the right positions mm. to make the most of their, of their skills. Yeah, and it's so interesting that you say that because I feel like particularly with the last couple of years with the very reactiveness of needing to provide services and grants and different things like that, people just got moved into different areas with little to no experience and kind of got left in the corner to just, do those things even though they were employed for a completely different purpose um and it's almost like setting people up to fail when you're putting them in these positions that they're not even really like never 
been employed for, but done it under the guise of like, oh, we're just giving you extra opportunities and, you know, exposure and all those sorts of things, which is really like, we want you to do three people's jobs, but we just want to employ you as a one person and just keep piling on workloads. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, um, the, the, the HR component's really strange how that all works because especially the government see people, or sort of in state government, that people were being shifted across from department to department with, and not only is unfair on them, but you know, if, you, if you've been working in one area, do you want to be in trade? Has anyone asked you? But they sort of, uh, what's it called? The machinery of government, the mocks, where they just yep. get moved and you get people coming in from completely different backgrounds. Yeah. We have no interest in that area, but, you know, they've got more just to pay. So what are you going to say? No, I'm not going to move across. So it's, yes, yeah, not ideal. Well, it's kind of like these bums on seats, right? It's like, we don't care who you are. You're just a bum on seat and like, yeah, just, get it done it's um yeah i think there's also a a budget thing i think the more people the more people that someone has under them the more budget they control absolutely yeah that's that's another point as well so it's great to have a big team which to me managing people sounds like an absolute nightmare but a lot of people (laughs) like that and they think the bigger team they have the the more importance they have internally yeah they create their own little fiefdoms right and the more people you have, the more power you have to to exert around different areas. Yeah, it's um, yeah. it is fascinating. It's yeah. So, what is the craziest experience you've had? It doesn't have to be in an office context or government or anything, but like when it's come to these sorts of, particularly in your last article around like the you know this power play and all that sort of thing. What's the craziest thing you've come across and seen in your time, like of people kind of being completely detached from reality and in this like, I don't know, drinking the Kool-Aid of power with absolutely no regard for for what's real? Oh, wow, there's so there's oh, just think <laughs> there's a lot of people a lot. <laughs> there's a lot. I think the one I wrote about, um, it, I just briefly mentioned it in that last article was, you know, the, the trade minister's going to India and it's a super important market. We've got companies paying big money to go over there. And the only thing he was concerned with in the lead up to it was having his team find an elephant for him to ride while he was in India. Yeah. And it's, you know, you just think, is that, it's something like from Utopia, but it was true. And, and you know, and you're not even allowed to ride in, uh, elephants anymore in India as well with the animal welfare aspect. But that was his thing and he wanted to do it. And this is a person who's been in government for a long time, you know, as a politician, and that's his priority. And you think, how does he get to that level that, that that's happening? Um, so that to me, that I mean, that's one that always sticks in my mind. But there's, yeah, there's, so, there's so many things. Like you see people, um, yeah, one, one of the really interesting ones, it's, it's not even funny and bizarre, it's just sort of insidious in how things work is that there was a position, uh, an internal position advertised and they released the, and it was it was to backfill someone like maternity leave or something, and they released the uh, um, the criteria for the job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know the person who's got it currently, you know they're in the background, you know their knowledge, and then the criteria comes out and it's completely, you know, completely that no one in Australia would have the knowledge that they're asking for. Yeah. And then you see the person who, who gets it and you go, there's no way that you know, they know from that thing. So you see these things where, where jobs are made for people, they know who they want. And then 
So you, what happens is that, you know, people apply for it and straight away in the interview, they realise that they're applying for something that has already been given to someone. Mm. So I, saw, yeah. I saw a lot of that as well. Yeah. Uh, but that was what that what one particular sticks in my mind where, you know, the, the candidate, you know, we're, we're a state government trade department. We're running trade missions. We're providing some advice to, to exporters. And then the position was, you know, you had to know the world trade rules, you know, yeah. Article 4, Clause 6, uh, you know, <laughs> the, of the gap. And you're like, nobody knows that. Why is that in the job interview in Adelaide? Anyway, so that's those types of things. But if I had to say one, yeah, having having like a whole team of well-paid people running around trying to find an elephant for somebody to ride in India. That's, uh, yeah, great. that's a pretty good one. I mean, yeah, like there's definitely a lot of those sorts of things. I do recall a minister at one point wanting a bigger plane and a bigger ship for the uh, for a photograph opportunity and a uh, and a media release and yeah like there's there's so much of the behind the scenes public relations stuff that I think people yeah. are just they don't really understand um, how it's all orchestrated as well like yeah. and how many people are involved in actually making these things happen these like, things happen no. it's it's actually they got, they got yeah. <laughs> and I remember another one when you think about like when you don't know what goes on behind the scenes. I was in a, a in an acting role for my manager, and I got called down to the executive directors or directors, and they had to go up to Senate estimates. Yeah. And so they're asking me like questions about the work that had been done over the previous twelve months. So they've got a report on that afternoon to Parliament, and I don't know. Say they said, "Well, you know, how many exporters have you serviced?" And we said. And I said, oh, I don't know what the number was. And they said, well, why don't we just say 600? I said, well, I don't think that's a correct number because of this, this, and this. Yeah, but it was this number last year, so it was about 10%. And, you start, and so when you see it like that, when that goes up, then you see that on television as the number being given an estimate. And then you see mm-hmm. the scenes that it's just someone inventing. So that was one of the big eye-openers for me in government. And when I went into government, I was thinking it's going to be super structured. It's going to be yeah. raw. Will I fit in? It's going to be so straight. And it just wasn't. It was as if everything that was being done was being done for the first time. So that to me was a real eye open. There is so much of that. I mean, actually, like, you know, aside from the six-figure salary and the, you know, the things on the paper that, you know, forced the pen to sign the contract, like what actually encouraged you to even, like, seek out that sort of government experience? Uh, desperation. <laughs> well, no, in a part, it actually touches on another thing which I've found in Australia. So I've I lived overseas for 10 or 12 years. Uh, it worked, it, I had run my own consulting company. I was working with um, renewable energy companies, mining companies, oil and gas companies through Latin America. And I'd done that for about 10 years. And then just for a lifestyle change, uh, got married, came back to Australia. And when I got back here, it was this, all of that knowledge and work experience counted for absolutely nothing in Australia. And all my contacts were in the US, they were in Europe. I hadn't done much work, much work with Australian companies, I've been with other companies in Latin America. And I remember going into a, sitting down with a, a recruit, recruitment agency. Yeah. And they looked through the CV. You know, I'd worked with companies, BHP, um, Glencore, like big, big multinational companies. Yeah. Uh, Samsung. Anyway, 
And they said, oh, look, you've got this like, 10 years of Latin American experience. Why don't you just erase that and just say you did that work, but just pretend you did it in Australia. <laughs> and I was like, what? Really? <laughs> and it was, and then so it was something um, that I realised that that international experience, and I've since seen that expats coming home is often quite difficult for them to have their experience and their their um, whatever they've learned or education overseas recognised in Australia. Yeah, unless they can say, "Oh, yeah, you used to work in Sydney or Melbourne," or it's kind of hard for people to place. And I'm talking about people with a lot more talent and, and skills than myself. And you're like, "What is coming?" It's, 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 it's a difficult thing and I don't know if it's that there's an, an attitude in Australia about people that leave and coming back but I found it quite difficult so I, I found it really difficult to find a job mm. back. and I wanted to be you know doing what I'd done I had all these skills I speak Spanish I speak Portuguese I had, a, uh, I'd had an MBA um, and I couldn't find anything it was just like nothing and then this job came up um, and it was actually quite funny because I applied for the, a role exact same role in Victoria didn't even get an interview and then I applied for the exact same role in Adelaide and got the job so again it shows you know, same person's exactly the same job you don't even get an interview and then the next one you get it so it's such an arbitrary process you know job hunting yeah it's, it's a difficult it's a, it's a difficult one so I'd never been to Adelaide never knew about Adelaide and it was brilliant I absolutely loved Adelaide made some really good friends there but uh, to go into it, yeah, I, I didn't wouldn't have expected. I thought I would have, when I came back. I thought I would have gone into the private sector. I thought oh, I'll do this for you know, a year or two, build up some contacts. Yeah. And yet, your experience was very different to to what you anticipated. I'm assuming <laughs> going into government. Oh, it was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was completely different, but yeah. it's good. I mean, it's great to you know, it's no lost experiences. You know, no, exactly. It was, it was really, yeah. It was really good and, and it's, yeah, I've got no regrets. Um, maybe it could have made a change a little bit earlier, but it's still good. Like I've got some great friends and met some really good people and had some great experiences. Um, like definitely hasn't been all bad, but it has definitely been uh, yeah. in terms of, of a workplace to be in. But yeah. yeah, it is fascinating. And like I actually wanted to kind of, I guess, quote back to you in a way, one of your... Um, like talking about writers quoting and different things like that but in terms of success like success is keeping yourself whole and success is fulfilling that secret obligation to yourself like just in terms of that I mean where are you at currently in keeping with that success I guess intention yeah I think so I think when you get into a job situation success can be when I make this promotion or when I get to that level of this or when I get this amount of savings or when I have a house or, or whatever. But I suppose I've just come to the conclusion that that didn't do anything for me. Yeah. Like, you know, just didn't do anything for me at all, didn't motivate me, didn't inspire me. So I suppose that line was about trying to redefine what success would be like. So I've come to think that actually just doing things my own way for me is successful if I can keep doing that because I have gone off the track and tried to do things which you're supposed to do which I'd probably call conformity, um, it hasn't filled me with anything at all. So now I feel really good. Like I, uh, at the moment, master my own time and I'm doing things which I find have value. Um, and, and one of the big keys or tells for me is that when I was in 
when I was working in government and you'd get praised for something or you'd done something well, didn't mean anything to me because mm. often it was coming from people that I didn't actually value themselves. Yeah. You know, the higher up people. I had some really good managers, like direct ones, but the people higher up is, means nothing if you get praised from that. Um, but now because I'm doing things that I, I actually feel like I've got a talent for, which I enjoy doing, which is the writing. When you get even just the littlest bit of feedback and positivity, it actually means something because you feel like yeah. you're being valued. You're being valued for something that you yourself actually valued. Um, you know, if someone says, oh, great email to such and such, like, okay, that doesn't mean <laughs> love that love that spreadsheet you yeah. no one would praise my spreadsheets but you know what i mean it's like yeah you, you just do some really basic things and people oh that's amazing you're like it's not really so it meant, meant nothing to me so in that way now like you know with, with the book that's come out and, and people send emails or they leave a comment and say it, it actually means something to put a lot of effort into it. it means something to me and it means something that other people value it so I think that has kind of made me feel really good about things. Makes me inspired to get up in the day and, and do things. But I just think I'm living a, uh, a more balanced life. I know around my family, my wife, I'm a much happier person to be around, um, whereas I was continually stressed. And the whole thing about sort of work-life balance, I, I found was complete crap. And that if you have like this awful job, the thought that you can just switch that off and have a great weekend and everything's balanced out just seems to be complete rubbish. Yeah. Um, and I, or, or in my case, it was like I had a real tough time trying to just switch off and leave that in the office. Okay, that's the, you, know, you do seven and a half hours a day. That's it. And it, it was hard. It was hard to switch off. So I feel like I'm in a much happier place in terms of just lifestyle. And I'm working probably, you know, working hard, uh, writing. And then I've got the time I can just switch off and go and do what I want to do and come back to it. And just feel like I feel, I do feel whole and feel like, uh, yeah, much, much happier person. Um, even though, again, economics is completely different. And yeah, you, I've, I've written about how tough it is to make a living as a writer. Yeah. But even that, like I said, that's just a money problem. Like, go and get a job. You know, go get a job packing shelves somewhere. That's fine. I'll do that a couple of days a week. And I've got time. That's better than being in a role that actually drains you mentally because of all the things you see going on around you, mm. which make you question your own sort of values and sanity. Yeah. And like, that's so true. I mean, you know, um, like how to be able to disassociate from being in that environment each and every day so that it doesn't like impede on your own self-worth is so, you know, it's, it's so important. And I think that that's what so many people struggle with too, is like, and you touched on this in, in some of your articles as well, like um, about, how you were you know your self-confidence was so eroded that like even going to find a job you didn't feel like you were qualified in order to even do that because of the environment that you'd been in um for such a long period of time like you know it's it's so amazing what can happen in the different environments that we're in and how you're able to use those experiences to write about that and help to connect people to make them not feel so lonely in their experiences that they're going through. Yeah, well, well I think they can, they can definitely devalue and you can quickly fall into that trap. And we have this hierarchical sort of appreciation here. Well, they're the CEO, they must know. So if they say you're not doing a good job, it must be right. And it's, it's just not true. Like how do you, because you don't know how they, people got to these roles to start with. So 
I was, I was chatting the other day about an example that uh, when I was at Australia 18 months ago, you know, a very senior uh, person in the executive completely rubbished uh, a brief that I'd written. And, you know, at this stage, I'm going, well, I'm a published author. Like, I'm, I'm about to have a book published. I know I can write. Yeah. But to me, that didn't mean it. That didn't mean anything. I just thought, well, you know, I know I can write, but I know you haven't read the brief, so it doesn't matter. But, yeah. but that's how they're treating people who are in there. And, and when I asked someone about that, I said, why would they do that? And they said, oh, because you're news, they're trying to write, you know, a lot of new people come on, they're trying to put people in their place. I go, what an awful way. I said, I said in my words, I said, that doesn't sound a very collegiate way to work, that a senior executive wants to put people in their place because they're new. Didn't worry me because I, I knew I could write, I knew it was a good brief, that's fine. But again, you've got people coming out of university, you got, everyone's got different confidence levels, and you, that treatment just devalues people. So that, that's- you know, if you, if you then go for a job and part of this writing briefs and you said, well, the, you know, the, the executive said that I can't write, you're going to be doubting yourself. Yeah. But at that stage, I was fine. But at the very, but that was when I was already federal government. When I was in state government, yeah, I could really be valued. And it's not even people telling you things. It's just, you just see, you see the people that get promoted and you think, wow, they're yeah. getting promoted. I'm not. What, you know, what am I doing wrong? Not, not my case because I <laughs> didn't want to get promoted. But, um, <laughs> but, this is, but you just do, you just, you know, you, even if you put up an idea, yeah, and, uh, and then people say, "Oh, thinks he knows everything," mm. just because he's got an MBA, and it's those little snide sorts of comments, um, which you just start thinking, "Oh, okay, maybe if everyone, you know, maybe maybe it is, maybe it was, I don't know. but I, I felt that was really that was hard to deal with. That there, there were people at certain levels who got there off the back of I don't know what the word is, nepotism, probably the word sinecures, but and then they would keep other people's good work now. And, and I'm saying, and this is how this is being sour represent, but I've seen that with other people, like really talented people, and then speak up. Um, and yeah, and if I have to be honest, you see it with women a lot, that they're the ones who get put in their place. And, um, you know, I work with some really talented female people, female colleagues, and they're amazing, but you can see that how I was treated was completely different how they were treated. Yeah. And I'm, thinking, I'm thinking about one particular person who I joined at exactly the same time as they did and they got completely different treatments and they were like um in certain ways sort of humiliated to be kept in their place and i, I could see that i was being treated completely yeah it's, it's it, they're, they're workplaces that can really if you're not resilient can really wear you down absolutely and like as you touched on before you know hr is not there to help you they're there to kind of you know um protect the the organization more than they are to protect the worker in a lot of ways which is you know or protect the executive which is just awful like you've yeah people feel so alone and they they don't have anyone to kind of talk to and I think that that's where so much of this you know gossip and different things kind of happens and this insidious nature of like toxic cultures really are created because people are forced into these silences and treated awfully. And yeah, yeah, it's just, it's awful to think that, you know, these are the, these are the environments that like people coming out of university or whatever are being exposed to and thinking that that's normal. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, HR was, it was a a really strange. And a lot of times they were just people there for two weeks, like two week contracts or temps or back rules and like that. But (laughs) it reminded me of, 
you want a really bonkers story of how bizarre it all is. Um, we went through like a restructure and some really good people got laid off. And I remember I was sitting at my desk and one of the gentlemen that was laid off was escorted from their office with their things, door locked, you know, must have wow. been awful for that particular person. And then like at a sort of a staff meeting where <laughs> saying, hey, you know, to the, to the hey, what's going on? Why, you know, what's, is someone going to replace them? Are they being, you know, what's, you know, and they're like, they're just on long service leave. <laughs> and you're like, we just saw them get marched out of the office with their, with, we just saw them marched out of the office by security with their belongings and their doors locked. And, and, the, and they will sit there and tell you they're on long service leave. Wow. So, so it's those types of behaviours that just make you go, am I going bonkers here? It's this moment. But that was a really, that was a strange one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like sometimes when people say, oh, go watch Utopia, it's a bit too triggering because it is very close to the truth in so many ways. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't watch it. I, I know a lot of people who are like, don't watch it. It's just like, it's kind of not funny because it's actually happening and it's happening to people. And, and then, there is an effect. It really affects people, I think, when you see that kind of behaviour. And I think um, just going back about compartmentalising, mm. I think if you've got a job where you just go and you pack shelves or you're doing labour or something, you just go into your job, walk out, that's fine. I think what it's what was difficult is that when it when you that's a not a cliche to say, but when it goes against your values, when you see things that you know are wrong, I think that's when it actually gets inside you and stuff. And you know, everyone's got different values. My values are not universal at all, but if you're in a place where you're seeing things which go against your values, things that you wouldn't do to your family or do to your friends and that's how you're being treated or you're seeing other people getting treated uh, I think that's really hard to just to switch off and I think for me as I, I saw some like really good people being treated just terribly and they're too nice to say anything yeah <laughs> it's absolutely just so, it's, so, it's so unfair it's, oh, and I'd, I'd go home and stew on that that's just, yeah yeah the injustice of it is just awful and I and I feel like your values really speak through like even your book as well so yeah um like you know you've basically gone on a crusade to kind of make sure that history has been you know corrected um through your book as well like it's it's actually incredible like the the amount of research and the way that you've gone into it is just it's so fascinating um the way that you write is so intriguing as well like the anecdotes coupled with the research and, you know, trying to piece together the truth of what really happened as opposed to what we're told as history as such um, is, yeah, like just remarkable. And I feel like some of that comes through in in the way that you talk about an office situation as well in, in terms of like, you know, the values and and getting back to that. So I guess like what's the next crusade on, on Ryan <laughs> of, of, you know, um, is it another book or is it like... Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm researching on the book at the moment uh, on the, the pearl industry in Broome, which I think is another bit of Australian history that hasn't actually been examined. I mean, it has been, but not uh, in a wider sense, I suppose. And I think there's some stories there that... I'd like to tell about how we've treated people. I kind of like to look at the myths, and I suppose the, the, 
the ballot of underway is about looking at the myth of this in you know, the Australian fair go. Because a lot of people in Australia don't get a fair go. Yeah. And we like to tell ourselves it's true. But then I always think the people who don't get a fair go, what must they think? They must think, well, what's wrong with me? Because everyone's getting a fair go. Or everyone's saying we get one, but it's not happening. So I think we need to confront that and say, well, actually, not everyone's had a fair go in Australia. We still haven't had a fair go. And that was kind of one of the driving themes of, of that story to look at saying, you know, here were people that came, contributed, worked hard, did all the things that we're supposed to do as Australians and still didn't get a fair go. So is it true? And I'll say, and, you know, the concept of a fair go in Australia is part of our fabric, but it's not something that's a given. We actually have to work at it mm. every day and, and make sure, you know, we can't be locking people up offshore and say everything's going to be a fair go. It doesn't make sense. No, so that was, that was that. And it's about telling the truth. I just think it was, it's, I've been going out giving library talks around New South Wales, regional Australia, about the book in Victoria. And people want to tell the truth. They want to know what actually happened. I think there's this realisation that what we've been told when we learned at school isn't the full truth. So mm. I think people actually want to know what did happen. And, yeah, there's some things that are really tough to look at. But there's also a lot of stuff that's been um, hidden, which is really positive. And I think it makes our history richer if we actually confront it and look at it and embrace it. And, and Another big part of the book was to actually recognise and acknowledge the contribution that Afghan people have made to Australia. Um, you know, I think for most people today, you think about Afghanistan, you think about September 11, and that, uh, the US invasion, Australian invasion in 2003. But our countries go back so much further than that, and it's such a positive relationship. And I just think if we acknowledge it, surely it's time. And it's not about replacing one thing with the other. It's about saying... You know, white settlers did this, and indigenous people did this, and the Afghans did this, and the Chinese migration did this, and just creating a place and a space for everyone to be acknowledged. And surely that's a rich history than saying, you know, first fleet came over and Australia was born. I mean, it's it's just so reductive and so ridiculous. Absolutely, like we're a country that's such a patchwork of cultures. You know, like there's so much nuance there that hasn't been explored and yeah I think that the way that you do that is so fascinating as well so yeah you're glad writing, you enjoyed it <laughs> your writing is incredible um and how best can people support you on your journey oh just keep reading the, the, the newsletter's free um so that's fine no just buy the book keep reading no I don't, I don't know it's kind of what I've come down to is that like, it's, it's tough to, to, to make money as a writer in Australia unless you're Trent Dalton and do good on him because he's, you know, found a niche and he's doing that and he's doing it well. Um, but it's not even about it. It's just, it's just something we've got to do and I, I like to write. So, so if people are reading it, that's the that's the best thing. And even just people go read and comment or like, that's definitely, it's great. Think, okay, great. It's, it's helped someone only send me little stories. That's all. Um, yeah, it's just you know, knowing that you, you contributing something I think that's the main thing yeah and so out of the office forever or watch this <laughs> <laughs> well it was actually funny I was thinking the other day was the first out of office I wrote was about you know burning your boats and quitting your job but yeah. I actually think the out of office posts are the real burning I don't think anyone would employ me if they read through those I can't, I can't <laughs> imagine going through a job interview and so I said just read a newsletter it looks like you never want to work again uh <laughs> But I mean, I don't know. I don't know what will happen at the moment. I'm happy, and, and I, I, I wouldn't. I would never ever go back to that ever. Mm. That's that's a complete no. I don't think my family would let me go back either. But 
you know, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't have the same relationship with work if I went back. I'd, I'd have to be doing something that I'm actually passionate about. But I also think there are different work teams, which could be interesting. And I think, I think those little, those smaller companies where everybody is crucial to the survival of the company. Yeah. I think that would be a really interesting place to work where, you know, the, the, you know, the, the marketing person needs the salesperson to make sales and the salesperson needs the, the, the product development and develop something great. Where we all kind of connected and relied. I think that would be an interesting thing. So I think a lot of the thing about these big organisations, you feel like you can just drop off the face of the earth. Mm. It makes absolutely zero difference. Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you've sent 10 emails and you're like, what, what have I done? It's just <laughs> you've done nothing. Yeah. You, you, you might get the KPI because you've called 10 people or whatever, <laughs> but you're like, what have I actually done today? What have I created in the world? And what have I left behind today? Nothing. You know, I'll lose my hard drive. That's my seven years of evidence of what I've actually done something that's gone. So I think it's about trying to find something that you know, has meaning, has value. So, so I'm writing this. I'm, I'm writing some articles for magazines as well. Um, I'm going to do some other things with the newsletter next year. Um, we'll look at some, and yeah, try and do some different things with that. And then working on this next book. So a few things. We'll see. Yeah. That's exciting. Well, so much. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with the world as well. And thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Today. Uh, I really, really appreciate your time and yeah. Go well, so thanks for having me. I don't know if it's wisdom, it's just my experience. And if someone can take something from that, and that's great. But I think it's one of the one of the things is it's about talking about it. And Absolutely. I think that's just helpful for people go, oh, I'm not the only one going through this. And I'm sure there are people who absolutely love working in government and having a great time. And that's great. That's that's fine. And if they're, you know, if that's working out for them. Brilliant. But there's also a lot of people that um, probably struggling. So it's probably more for them and say, hey, you know, there are others of us that think like that as well. And here are the some things that I've gone through and that can help you think about what you need to do or what you need to change. Or maybe you have a thinking you don't need to change anything. Grass is definitely not always greener. Uh, no, that's but it's just about but it's just about sharing it and having a conversation and not keeping it in the dark. Yeah. And you know, it's like anything, right? A trouble shared is sort of halved in that way and people can kind of feel a bit consoled in the fact that they're not the crazy ones that are yeah being like is this what this is <laughs> yeah yeah no exactly so hopefully that helps a little bit like that thank you so much really appreciate it thanks for chatting enjoyed it thanks ryan